We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Check 22. Companies shall act in the interests of people and the biosphere. Yes, this is a familiar sounding, looking back to our first principle of governments acting in the interests of people in the biosphere. But just to break it down a bit... As envisaged, we're talking about companies as groups of people engaged in activities as opposed to, for example, the legal definition of companies. Is that right? Exactly. And those companies should have a social license to operate. And then when we talk about interests, we're talking about really who who benefits and what their purpose, what their reason for being is. And then people, it's really who is who affects and is affected. So it's not just the shareholders and, and customers, but it's all the affected stakeholders. The staff, the community, you know, any interaction. And then, and then, of course, the company's impact on the biosphere affects everyone. Else. The biosphere is personified as, as a central partner. An entity itself, by the day, it's becoming obvious to everyone that without the biosphere, we don't exist. So, you know, the biosphere has to be number one. Uh, That's where everything starts. And if you behave as, you know, we have behaved of treating biosphere is an infinite dumping ground and an infinite resource then you end up where we've ended up Um, and that exactly so this provides the context for this principle and this episode and as you say so working back from the end of your principle back to where we started again so the biosphere is an infinite resource and infinite dumping ground Um, people are often treated this way but you also yeah. have, as we've said, consumers, employees, shareholders, directors, managing directors. And yeah. so there's this question of the question of interests is really about a competition of interests. You have this sort of quest, there's some sort of power relations, and you're thinking, well, who really benefits from all of this? And of course, you think of these excessive managing director salaries and that kind of thing, and the, the relative power of shareholders in different cases. And the way these companies have come to behave, which is predominantly in the interests of big money, global monetary system shareholders, big shareholders, not small ones, those are the interests that in practice are primary in companies, mm. companies listed on the stock market, that is. And this has got to be totally turned on its head, really. 
because we know it doesn't work. It can't work. But this, this question of companies has a long history. And in a sense, what's fundamental to the existence of a company is this question of limited liability, which yes. sort of made sense when people were grouping together to send ships yes. off across stormy seas. Mm. But in our time, it's become this thing which I understand is called the corporate veil, where nobody really has responsibility. And so yeah. you have, you know, Facebook being fined in Ireland, I think, was it 50 million? Ultimately, it's not a significant amount of money, even in terms of their weekly earnings. No. It's, you know, it's, it just sounds like a big number. Yeah. So and, the, and... the question of companies and, and responsibility and, and this veil, this corporate veil, is really central in a sense to turning this thing Absolutely. on its head. And, and, and this has sort of grown up over the years. And there have always been corporate veils and there have always been dodgy companies. The way in which it's become sort of almost universal is a product of the system. There are 50 shades of capitalism and we've got only one mm. particular shade and pretty much the most extreme shade. The system that has arisen, the legal framework, the Companies Acts, all of these have then been moved and shifted, not least through preferential lobbying, to put at the absolute pinnacle big shareholders and top management. Mm. We therefore have to change the system, the context in which these organisations operate. And you rewrite the rule book and there's a new set of rules which are properly applied, mm. indeed enforced, with the biosphere and people at the top. And then you get a whole different set of behaviours, managements, and indeed many different methods of financing. There's been so much degradation in the way in which companies have behaved. And I think we've talked before about this sort of ethical drift that occurred from about the yes, mid-90s yeah. to the point now where a company will do anything even if it breaks the law, so long as it's not going to cost them too much. So your point there about... Well, this is uh, part of the Chicago or no, the Harvard School of Economics, I think. Um, well, the Chicago and the Virginia School. I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, conspiracy theories abound, but some of them are absolutely lunatic. But the problem is that there was a conspiracy to create mm. this system that we now have so you know not all conspiracy and again theories. that goes back to the problem so i think one of the, the causes of the second world war and indeed the first world war when they were analyzed by a group including john maynard keynes they concluded that the free flow of capital was a massive problem and this was one of the key root causes to to the war to the rise of hitler etc etc yeah and so this construction of global rules at the Bretton Woods Conference mm. is what served to put the backs up of the international capitalists and banks and what led to the sort of revival ultimately of Hayek and neoliberalism as a way mm. of undermining yeah. that rules-based system in order yeah. to free up capital movement across yeah. borders and in turn all the sort of struce financial instruments that brought about the 2008 uh, global financial crisis yeah so there seems to be this uh, interplay 
between the good sense of people trying to create a world that more or less works for most people, or indeed yeah. everybody, and yeah. then the individual interests of individual people or companies who, I suppose, understandably, are in the, the business of enriching themselves and avoiding, for example, taxes and restraints. So that's then, a difficult then, nut to crack, isn't it? No, absolutely not. So this construction of rules and laws and preferential lobbying and company acts and you know the way in which they're all applied and not applied is purely an invention of our minds. There is nothing sacrosanct about this. It is an invention of our minds and it can be reinvented. You look at other people's prescriptions, donut economics and circular economy and Piketty and so on and so forth. Thomas Piketty, who wrote about capital recently, sort of yeah, and, slightly and echoing which, Marx's capital. Yeah, I mean, essentially saying the way in which capital works and capital is increasingly privileged over the benefits mm. of labour then capital will get richer and richer, i.e. assets, and labour will at best stay where it is and get poorer and poorer, and that's exactly what happens. So all of these things are inventions of the human mind. It is quite simple to reinvent. And yes, there's an awful lot of status quo power interests around the place. Well, at the moment that enough people in democracies go, no, we're changing the rules, then the rules can be easily changed. It's getting the will, it's getting that sense that we can do this, which we can, getting that sense mm. that we, indeed we must do this, and we are going to change the discourse. We've got the Labour conference going on this week, and I think the Conservative conference next week, and they're just a million miles from where they need to be. And they'll stay a million right. miles from where they need to be until we, the people, go, no, chummy, we want it differently. The different thing, well, the first different thing that we want is a sense of not just corporate responsibility, but corporate consciousness. You know, that the companies are conscious of what they're doing and responsive to what mm. they're doing. It's getting away from this rapacious extractive yeah. model and towards a longer view model. And as you've said before, there's this return to the ethical base. There has been a time we weren't jaded and saying no. things like, oh, well, that's just business. Companies had some... They did socially useful things. I mean, some of them do socially useful things now, but this is, you know, by and large goes into the sort of PR box, you know, that we ought to be, you know, yes. doing social yeah. greenwashing or whitewashing or whatever washing it is. You go back to the Quaker companies of uh, Boots and uh, Capri's, and indeed Quaker Oats, you know, there, there was a very strong ethic. And John Lewis and, as well, famously. And yeah. John Lewis, and they were very successful. You know, interestingly, you look at the models. We've talked about tomorrow's company. Well, we should talk about that again. So talk me through, what is tomorrow's company exactly? But In terms uh, of the constructs, I mean, first of all, there'll be the rule book, which, which actually said to these companies, you know, the law book, that actually this is the way you're going to behave, this is the way you operate. But then in terms of getting the ethos within the company changed and understanding why it's actually a really good ethos, 
Tomorrow's mm. Company has been around since the 80s. And Tomorrow's Company said you need to balance the interests of the shareholders, the capital providers, the staff, the customers, the community. I'm not sure whether they had the environment in at that time, but I think they would put that in now. And here are examples of companies behaving like this. And time and time again, uh-huh. what you find is that in practice, companies that behave like that are more successful, even by the profit mm, thing. Interesting. But the money may not be flowing in such concentrations into the beneficiaries of the global monetary system. It'll be flowing more equally. And of course, that's why they've increasingly got screwed. The car broke down on the way to the wedding this weekend. And along came the recovery people. And I won't bore you with the trials and tribulations. There used to be two mutual companies owned by members that did roadside recovery, which was the AA and the RAC. They were both demutualized and pushed into the global monetary system, whereupon the interests of, in this case, the key users became a subsidiary to the interests of the shareholders and capital, with a consequence that costs get cut, services decline, and there you can be waiting for three hours and then get the wrong answer anyway. You know, if only the RAC and the AA, which were quintessentially tomorrow's companies, had stayed as they were, then I wouldn't have been hanging around for three hours. You know, there's a hard wiring between what you get out of these organisations and the balance and fairness and their constructs. So there's tomorrow's company's colleague at work. He's done a similar sort of book and gone through a number of companies. I think McKinsey have done work. I think Harvard Business School have done work. Time and time again, if you treat people well, and fairly, you get a better return. Well, that's interesting because with McKinsey, they did a lot of work on how having design at the center of the company affected the bottom line. And if I remember rightly, companies that were, as they said, design-centric, and they had clear criteria for this, generally improved their bottom line by 12% just by that one thing. And that was more or less analogous to having a systemic view of the business. Yeah, you know that, that, that it was very clear about purpose and, and process. Yeah, absolutely, and but that takes—it's not even long-term thinking. It's a shifting mindset and a bit of medium-term work. But you know the daily pressures of neoliberalism, uh, global monetary systems, daily pressures. I was talking to a guy who works in Oracle, and they have their quarterly results, and every quarter. The pressure goes on to record sales. The pressure goes on to minimize costs. The pressure goes on. That quarterly pressure endlessly is going to chase out much long-term thinking. Whereas if you don't have those pressures, and we can actually stand back a little bit and design and think and connect, then those processes have got a chance of flowering and indeed becoming embedded and established but yeah design absolutely but it's so interesting philip because there are so many of these things so many of these studies which say if you do this then your company in the long run will be more successful people will be happier yes, yeah. and of course we see this around but mental health as time well, and time again it doesn't yeah. happen precisely because 
the bleeding systems they operate in. And are there any other particulars tomorrow's companies that stick out to you? Before it was bought by L'Oreal, the body shop would have been a sort of obvious... The body shop, and, that and of, of course, thing. that had a different structure of ownership well. because Anita Roddick owned it, and it was a family-run business, and therefore could set the ethos. So, you know, you find that in Germany with these uh, family-owned businesses and depends on the ethos of the family, of course. Obviously, John Lewis, which has been suffering a bit, but, you know, in the long run has done really, really well as a a sort of workers' co-op. Historically, I mean, a company like Toyota would, would in a sense... Yeah. You know, insofar as, firstly, it has an ethos at all, as opposed to just sort of yeah. grinding everybody to make a profit. I mean, that, that seems to be the a part of having a design center is basically yeah. having thought about these things, being more universal in, in their thinking and, mm. and looking for what the point of what they're doing is. Well, I mean, this um, is a very good example here. Two points, I guess, to make. One is the structure of Japanese companies going back to when they started to take off in automotive and consumer electronics, so Sony and Toyota and Honda and all the rest of them. So we're talking about the 70s and 80s. The structure of those companies is very, very stable. People had jobs for life. The management was very, very stable. I think the financing was certainly, they weren't at the whims of the way in which company financing works now and all of those shareholder pressures. So that was the first point, and that allowed, I think, a very different culture and ethos to grow and become embedded. But the other point, interestingly, because then Toyota and Honda and the rest of them established standards of management and standards of organisation, supply chain, total quality, management of staff and motivation of staff, established standards which meant that they were the most successful automotive organisations in the world. The competitive pressure meant that actually all car companies had to follow that model. So I was trying so to remember were, the name of the guy who introduced Total Policy, uh, Deming. Deming. W. Edwards Deming. So he was part of the global learning engine, shifting stuff around, the irony being that if you're going to compete successfully in this business, you've got to act like, in essence, a tomorrow's company. But this is also an arena where there's potential for consumer power. As individuals, we can vote with our wallets. Consumer power, as we've discussed before, is immense and is used too little. There's a reasonable amount going on at present in the stock markets where people are putting more of their money into things like, I don't know, global clean energy. Well, they call it ESG, don't they? Environmental, environmental social and governance. Social governance companies, um, renewables, you know, blah, 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 the, which is sustainability. This is all good to see. The problem is that you've got to look at the small print because there's quite there's quite a lot of greenwashing in all of that. Of course. Um, yeah. But it's a good trend. It was you that put me on to, or maybe it was my daughter put me on to Ecosia, to use Ecosia yeah. instead of Google, which is great. Yeah. They, they plant yeah. a tree. We might be able to find for the show notes a list of companies that make the cut. You know, let's focus on the biosphere and focus on the way in which companies are behaving towards the biosphere and towards people. Um, coming back to our 
principle number 22 and say, yeah, that's a good company. I'll buy from them. And maybe it will cost a bit more, but, but often the reason it will cost a bit more is precisely because... It, it conveys the, the true the true cost. It's payback time now as well is is the other problem that we've had things that we should have paid for, i.e. the biosphere, for hundreds of years, and now suddenly the debt collectors are here. Mm. Yeah, so inflation uh, is inevitable. You know, as you've suggested before, you know, the, there's the potential to set up parallel institutions. But also, I suppose, as individuals, there's potential to enact parallel behaviours in how we govern ourselves and our our families. And to, you know, a part of that is acting in the interests of people in the biosphere as a way of looking at things and then trying to construct a fabric of social and commercial life that engages with people who also act in the interests of people in the biosphere as a kind of outlook on things. I couldn't agree more. Sort of living by example and going, well, well actually, mm. I am going to behave like this. And I should say at this point, you know, the people on a low income are going to struggle to make any changes because life is pressured. But there's an mm. awful lot it of is people more expensive. Who, yeah, it's absolutely true. Who, who aren't on low incomes, who do have choices about how they behave, who they buy from, and... Yeah, what they do and, and how they work with other people. And, of course, working with other people is always a fabulous thing. This is what – there was a piece, I think, in the paper this week about flooding and, you know, how horrible and awful the flooding has been in wherever it is. But that people in responding to the flooding, working together, um, collaborating, had mm. never been happier. So there they are flooding oh, out. But actually, once they start working together to a common purpose and they're collaborating, i.e. they're being human, they've never been happier. Mm. And so, yeah, there's, there's great benefits. When my daughter was young, we were living in Ireland and there was snow and the snow did not affect the roads which mainly ran up the valleys where we were, or at least they were cleared, but where we were staying up in the higher ground, everything was ground to a halt. Wow. And what was interesting to me was everybody came out of their houses to help the cars along. Yeah. It was like a festival atmosphere. Inconvenient for everybody, and there were issues around getting shopping and you know making sure everybody had food and people's bread yeah. pipes and all this kind of thing. But the sense of, of community and atmosphere was... was very yeah. obvious and, and clear. Tyson Juncker Porter that we talked about last week, Fred Harrison and a number of mm. other people have been putting on the table what is it to be human. And it's increasingly becoming clear to me that this pull, this tug between the rampant individualism and the collective mm. and collaborative you know, it's perceived to be, oh, well, you know, we're, we're individualists and we're in this corner, we're collaboratives, we're in this corner. Not at all. The whole individualistic approach, behaviour and all the rest of it has just grown up in the past century, particularly through, you know, marketing, advertising, getting us to need things that we never even thought there could possibly be a need or a want mm. for into this 
global monetary system and it's bastardized people. And actually what it is to be human is to be collective and collaborative and that includes collaborative with nature and the environment. Tyson uh, Porter, so he made a very interesting point about from a systemic point of view, we're looking at ourselves as nodes in a system. And one of the things that's most important as a node in that system is to define yourself in a sense against mm. your community, mm. to bring as much diversity to the table. This mm. is what, in a sense, we should all be trying to do for the benefit yeah. of our system. You know, the, yeah. the node that has the widest network and the widest experience is the one that brings the most to the community. Yeah. And I exactly. thought, well, that reflects very much our chat from several episodes ago about, you know, the, just the sheer pleasures of being in London, you know, in being in a world yeah. city and being able yeah. to travel gastronomically and socially around the world within that city is tremendous. And in a way is the point of living. So to bring that to the interests of the people in the biosphere and the ideal of a company being a group of people, you know, a group of people who are in some sense collaborating. Well, that could be a, a better picture for how I mean, what a these wonderful things place can work. If they were all like that, people will often come to me and oh, I'm having a bad time at work, Ed, and this and that and so on. First point is to say that, well, actually, all organisations are shit. So just mm. because yours is, it doesn't mean that the next one's not going to be because it probably will be. What a foolish way to live. There's an interesting parallel or, or reversal that the company, as a legal entity, has the same standing as a person. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The, that's the company, and, and yeah. yet, almost by the same token, the company is a fantastically depersonalizing entity in many cases. You know, mm. you've everybody sort of enslaving themselves and deferring what they think of as individuals for this company, which only exists as contracts and, you know, pieces of paper, yeah. but doesn't actually have any consciousness or <laughs> sensitivity of its own. There's a contradiction between the word company as a group of people and as its existence as a legal entity, which I think is exactly what, in this principle, we're looking to invert, you know, to put, put it back yes. the right way up. Yeah, it is simply an invention of the human mind. We don't have to be trapped uh, in in this system in the way we exactly. are. We don't have to be the prisoners of all these people. Well, let's have a think about next week and principle number 23, which continues our tour of the companies. Yeah, so this is about how having got the... Company, uh, 22 in place, companies shall act in the interest of people in the biosphere, then this is the articulation, this is how it happens. So t 23, end-to-end -end producer responsibility. Producers are responsible for all impacts of their activities and products, from raw material extraction to product recycling disposal. 